Welcome to season four of the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, with your host, India Lorik Wilmot. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are in conversation with Javaka Steptoe. Javaka is an artist, designer, and nationally renowned children's book illustrator. Utilizing everyday objects, his artworks are reflective and thoughtful collage creations filled with vitality, playful energy, and strength. His debut picture book entitled In Daddy's Arms, I Am Tall, African-American Celebrating Fathers, earned him a Coretta Scott King Illustrator Award and a nomination for Outstanding Children's Literature Work at the 1998 NAACP Image Awards. Since then, Javaka has collaborated with some of the top names in the business, from Walter Dean Myers, Nikki Grimes, and Karen English, illustrating and writing more than a dozen books for children and young adult readers. And he has shown his works at various art exhibits across the country. More recently, Javaka won two awards, again, the Coretta Scott King Illustrator Award and the Caldecott Medal for his picture book biography entitled Radiant Child, the story of young artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, which received several honors, including being listed on the New York Times top 10 best sellers list and receiving multiple starred reviews. Javaka travels extensively reading and conducting workshops at schools, libraries, museums, and conferences across the country and internationally, inspiring future generations of young and adult artists. Welcome, Javaka. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, lovely introduction. Oh, you're more than welcome. And so for my audiences and I, we're all eager to take this interesting walk with you, learning a little bit more about your journey of belonging to Blackness. So are you ready? Let's go. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. Born and raised in Brooklyn, like me, but interestingly for you, you're born to two creatives, your mom, Stephanie Douglas, a collagist and painter, and your dad, the late John Steptoe, a pioneering illustrator. Your exposure to the art world and the possibilities of creative expression began as a young child. So what inspired your path to become an artist and a children's book illustrator? Like, how did your parents' art inform the development of your own creative approach? Just being in the atmosphere of of two artists, I just don't really know a time where I wasn't making art. I'm assuming it's just like you're new to this world and you can move your hand around and nothing really happens. Maybe the wind moves. But once you put one of these utensils in your hand, you're able to leave a mark. This is what my parents are doing. They're they're creating this magic and and they're putting things on a paper and creating beauty. So something about that appealed to me. In terms of being a children's book artist specifically, my father, he would work from home. And so my sister and I, we would come home from school and he would be at his desk working. And, you know, just like at any stage of a story, if he was proud of something that he he would be really excited to show us, look what I did, look what I wrote. He would just share what it is that he was working on with us. And I I think for two reasons. Number one, his audience is a children's audience, actually a family audience. Kids make up part of a family. The second reason is just being proud. Like as a creative person, no matter what your medium is, 
when you do something that you think is great, you want to share it with people. And so when your father would share his work with you all, what were those conversations like? What did he try to use that as an opportunity to impress upon you and your sister? He would share his work and then he would also talk about the reason why he started creating children's books in the first place. And he started at the age of 16 before he even left high school. And it was because he wasn't seeing the imagery and the stories that reflected his experience. And that's painful. Elaborate a little bit more on that for us. When you think of children's books, they're almost like the maps to adulthood, the maps to the world, the maps to like how to do things. All of this really great information is found in children's books. But if all of those maps are for people that don't look like you, then what are you supposed to do? Where's your map? Yeah, where's your map? And then you have a whole bunch of information telling you negative things. So what are you supposed to do? So he started creating children's books. I struggled with it. I don't have to create children's books. I could be my own person. I could do my own thing. It's a tall order to follow in the legacy and the footsteps of your father, who is world-renowned himself. And because of the decisions that he made in terms of creating children's books as a map for children, and then also as a resource for families, and the kind of the lexicon and the language, you know, that he chose to use to reflect the people and histories in these maps for you to then come as his son. And then people are also looking to say, well, okay, well, here's Javaka, but is he like John? But at the same time, as you were saying, art was always around you and your sister growing up. And to me, it's no surprise that if your mom was also a collagist, then you would integrate collage. I'm sort of curious because you could have chosen photography. You could have chosen another creative medium to still engage children in this way or your audiences more broadly. It's not that I don't try other things. I I try other things all the time. And like, I actually love taking photographs and I I love working in lots of different medias. And the thing is, is that being in the field that I am, like, I love theater. I can incorporate theater into what I'm doing. When I go to schools, I, instead of like lecturing with kids for an hour I create interactive theater with with the kids. So even though I am creating children's books, my mind is in lots of different places. Never an end of the curiosity of what I can do in order to tell a story. Like, for example, when I'm picking out materials for collage, I'm picking out materials based on that story, not because... I always do books in watercolor. I'm using materials that are pertinent to that story, that help propel that story. So what are the stories you choose to tell in your art and through the storybooks? Because you started talking about the choices that you make in terms of the media you choose to use is predicated on the story itself, which I get. Right. If you find that watercolor would be most effective if the story is supposed to feel very ethereal, then I would get that. Versus if you wanted something a little bit more textural because the story itself lends itself to that, then it would make sense. You know, for me, I am a big proponent of storytelling. And so I'm always interested in admiring how other creators subtly and boldly inspire their audiences. And 
inspire them to reimagine life. But what are the stories you're choosing to tell? Why specifically children's books? The stories that I tell are, are based on me, based on my values, based on my curiosity, what I enjoy, also based on what I think is needed. Like there are no stories about this subject or there's no stories like this. So like, let's tell this story. Let's tell this story as opposed to telling another basketball love story or somebody is in a gang story. There's spaces and Blackness in humanity, so many different parts of us And it really doesn't matter where we were born, who our neighbors are, what our community looks like. We can still tell those stories. I want to tell those stories that are are not being told. I want to introduce people to things that I think are interesting and I think are important. And why children's books? You mentioned your father's motivation, but what is yours? It was easy because people were expecting as a child. What do you mean? Like they would question you? No, it wasn't even a question. It was more like a demand. So you're going to follow in your father's footsteps, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know. The thing is, because if it wasn't really something that I enjoyed, I would be really bad at it. Got it. But it is something that I enjoy and it gives me a lot of freedom. And it's also filling a need. Like I need to have stories that are reflective of me and reflective of the complexity of who I am as an individual. And there's lots of other people that really need that, that are really searching for that for themselves and especially their children. What does this all mean to you in terms of navigating the publishing industry, in terms of being a creative and others like yourself who are trying to navigate this platform and to be able to put forth particular stories, but the industry itself adds a layer of complication? In my experience, it's about access. And the great thing about technology is that it it takes a lot of the, the financial burden because Creating a book is as like as a financial institution, a publishing company, they have profit and loss statements and they're looking at is this going to make money? And then when you add racism into that, it could make money, but they're probably not going to spend money on this because of the lack of access. These creative people might have to create projects like that. They're not getting them out there. And and sometimes they're being discouraged. We have these institutional gatekeepers. Yeah, but just also like financial. I could do this without an institution, sell these out of the back of my car. But how much money do I have to put down in order to have a printer print these up and blah, 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 blah. And live and to be able to sustain themselves and or their households, too. Some people are able to do it and some people can't just because maybe they have responsibilities. Maybe they have two or three kids and they're struggling and the amount of time and hours they have in a day. Like, I don't know. Right, because life is filled with joy, but also sometimes challenges and struggles and just complications. 
Yeah, that might trump your your call for, you know, being a creative person. But like I said, the great thing is that technology seems to be creating situations where it's less about those hurdles and, and more about you making the time to do it. I'm curious also to find out from you your process. Because I can imagine that if you are set in that you are outlining your next book project, there's a particular story or experience that you want to relay. And as you were saying, your decisions to use certain materials are based on the actual story. But what is that creative process like? And how long does it take? And you know how much research goes into the work? And what are some of the other type of creative influences that inform just even your selections for the pieces? I spend a lot of time thinking about what it is that I want to do. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what does it mean? You know, what at the end of the day am I saying? I make lots of lists. I, I read Octavia Butler. She would make lists all the time. She would just like list and list and list and list things. It's helpful because when you make art, there are so many levels of information that you can give access to the person who is participating in experiencing your artwork. And that's why making lists are important because like I'm I'm breaking down as many things that I am aware of and I'm trying to figure out how can I be of service to all of those different levels. So I think and I write, I write poems sometimes. I just do whatever it is that I have to do to process it. At a certain point in time, I have to like start making art. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? Where you figure that there's something in your spirit that says, you know what? I've read all that I've read or wanted to read so far. I've drawn, I've written poetry. I've done all these other things that help to feed my creative process. But then do you find that even that part takes several months? Does it vary based on how quickly things come to you? Like, what are we talking about? Because I know for myself that when I write books, granted, I'm interviewing people because a lot of books I write are nonfiction. So interviewing folks, doing field research, it takes months just to interview folks for the project. It sometimes takes a lot of planning to go to the archives and to go to the field. So from beginning to end, sometimes it takes me five to seven years to write a book. And that's also including the publication process and that sort of thing. I think you just feel like, okay, I have a good understanding of what it is that I want to say. And not just what it is I want to say, but also how I want to say it. Like when I was writing Radiant Child, I was writing things and I was going in all sorts of directions. But the thing is, in a biography, a biography is told from a point of view. You can't just say I'm writing a biography and list everything that happened in a person's life because that's not interesting. Biographies are are inspiring. Biographies are, are stories. And you're telling a story about a person's life from the perspective that you choose. And what was the perspective for you? Everything that I wrote down before that didn't really mean so much until the quote, I say, my mother gave me all the primary things. The artwork came from her. That is the beginning of my artistry, my mother. So this story has to be about Jean-Michel and his mother. 
there are many parallels between your story and the biography of Jean-Michel Basquiat. And so when I think about your work, what was it really about telling his particular story and your process in doing so? There are so many Black artists that needed Jean-Michel to be. And that's not to say that there weren't any other Black artists before him. But for our time and our situation, he opened the door. The way that people were telling his story was from a bitter place because people would say, oh, you know, I would hang out with Jean-Michel he would be telling me what to do and hiring me and giving me money, but he used me. Like, if you're his assistant and he's telling you what to do, how are you taking credit for his artwork? Right. You know, if you're in his house, in his party, at his party, eating his food, every time he calls you, you come, how can you say that he's using you? Another thing that people would do is like try to analyze and diagnose him. He was schizophrenic. He was this. He was that. He was bipolar. He was he was everything but an intelligent black man. I see the intelligence in his work. I see the passion, the creativity. I see how he has affected me and lots of other people. And so that story needs to be told. How does this art medium reflect the African descendant experience in comparison to other art forms of expression? Take, for example, Faith Ringgold. She, there's a lot of intentionality of her using quilts as a medium. Even Jean-Michel Basquiat used his type of drawing and other kinds of artwork to tell a very specific type of story. But for you, what does this art medium of illustration, of collage, how does it reflect the African descendant experience? To use whatever you have in your environment and make it what it needs to be. Like when I think about just the elements that you use or you've talked about, you're going through dumpsters sometimes if you see a piece. Yeah. So there's something, there's a resourcefulness. Some might think of it as a scavenger thing, but for you, you're, it's like, no, I'm going to utilize what's in the environment. That resiliency is just like humanity. Humanity has needed resiliency in order to survive. Anybody in a difficult situation has had to work in that way, has had to not be wasteful, has had to take whatever scraps and figure out a way to make this into something that is going to get me to the next day or the next hour or the next year. But in terms of tying it to Black people's experience in America, that part has been necessary. So this resourcefulness, this resiliency seems like it's very much a part of your efforts to tell this type of story about the African descendant experience. For us to survive, because without that, there is no other way. Also, having the call the desire, the need to tell our history, even though like these are children's books and they're written down, it's also a part of an oral history because when your kid is sitting on your lap or in bed and you're sitting beside your kid or this is something that is happening verbally, we're imparting these lessons 
And just in the same way as you talked about your dad, John Steptoe, and his books, your books too, if I'm gathering all of this correctly, they also serve as roadmaps and instruction manuals for the next generation through these images, through these words. Yeah, I think about the quilts and referencing Faith Ringel, where the quilts were more than just a pattern or a design. Colors and textures and things were chosen because that was what was there, but they were also the placement of those colors and textures and designs as a symbolic meaning to further tell a story. But then there's also the layering of a design where you say, I am going to add something more to this so that I am not just doing what I have to do, but also helping my my fellow African descended person living in this and struggling in this situation. Hey folks, enjoying this episode so far? Well, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out on IG at journeysb2b underscore podcast and share your comments about favorite guests or ideas for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe and like the show wherever you listen to podcasts. We're aiming for that five-star rating. Now back to the episode. Be what you want to see. Act two, the road. Okay, Javaka. So here's a question that I really enjoy asking all of my guests. Okay. And this question is, how do you play? If if you're asking me what are the things that I like to do, I like to dance, try things, challenging things. For example, do you want to go mountain climbing? Sure, I'll try it. Do you want to go scuba diving? Sure, I'll try it. I have something I would call maybe an adventurous spirit. My art is my play. I feel like my art is seeps into everything. It's, I love watching movies. I love food. Lots of different types of food. I, I love just like trying new things. There are a couple of things that I don't like that I'm really, really specific about. <laughs> I do not like vanilla wafer cookies. <laughs> I feel like those are the most horrible things in the world. And is it only, the vanilla part or the wafer part? It's just all nasty. <laughs> it's disgusting. The only reason that product is still around is because people make banana pudding. That is hilarious. And I love what you were saying about the fact that how you play, you play through your art, particularly for creatives. It's when you're creating, there's gotta, it's got to also come from a place of joy. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And an appreciation for the beauty that's around you that helps to inform the actual art itself. And oftentimes we think about work as something that's supposed to be hard and uncomfortable and painful and necessary, but without much choice. It's wonderful to hear you say that artists play for you, even though it's also a means through which you help to sustain yourself yeah. and others. Yeah, I'm not regretting my life. Like, I wish I could do more things, but I don't wish, like, I wasn't doing this, you know? Mm. Part of the things that you were saying earlier and the way I even think about 
art in general. It makes me consider the duality between materialism and labor versus humanity. And so you touched on the humanity part. And in many ways, when we talk about your profession as work, there's a materialism in there. There's a labor that's associated. But when I think about art and particularly humanity and the power of healing, it's this interesting tension that exists. So on the one hand, there's the perception of art and particularly however folks are defining what high art is and that there's an evaluation of it, the value others impose upon the author as well as the work itself. And then I think for you specifically how there's also the perception that children's books are easy to create because children are easy to please, right? (laughs) Even though I think, and as a parent, I think children are like our toughest and most honest critics ever, right? Like they could be a little cruel, I say. And then on the other hand, for me personally, grew up with a parent that is a mixed media artist and a furniture designer. So a lot of the things that you were talking about and inspiration and using different kinds of mediums to help inform your process, I totally get that. How do you specifically contend with this duality, this tension that I'm speaking of? There's no real separation, like a clearly defined separation between my art and my life. If you think about it now, that's kind of where the society, at least on the surface, is asking of people. Like I could video and document everything that I do and I I put it on a social media platform and I don't have to actually sell a piece of artwork. But if enough people enjoy the experience that I'm having, I can make hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think that I've had the luxury of being able to do that and just also understanding that I could get to that point. But it's it's just the, the mind frame of being a free person, not the absence of something that you see as a cage. Okay, so give us an example. You think of the close to the last scene of Django where he opens up the cage and and the guys are still sitting in the cage. You know, the cage is open, but they still don't have freedom. That's the trappings of materialism in the in the sense of yeah. when the art becomes work, because then you find yourself, okay, I'm not necessarily enacting upon freedom as I understand it. I don't, I'm not necessarily free if if it means that Con Edison or NSTAR, right. they want their money or where people feel like there's this association, this grind, and then that's what's motivating their art. Or even when I think about Basquiat and just how his art is everywhere, that even some people who are critics are like, it's very exploitative. Or there are other artists where things get expropriated in ways where it's just about material consumption. So your last point, that's not Basquiat. That's other people using his artwork in that way. And because he's not here, he doesn't have a voice to say whether he agrees with that or not. But to your point, these are the things that every artist has to struggle with and every person has to struggle with. Because the question is, at what point do you stop accepting everybody else's rules and regulation and stand up for yourself? Like for me personally, I understand there's a need for to pay rent, to pay a mortgage, to pay Con Ed, to pay this and that. I've seen my parents struggle with that. I feel like what I've done is I've protected myself in the sense that, well, I've protected my art. In what ways? 
I don't want to put myself in a position where I have to do what other people tell me to do for my art in order to make money. I am fortunate that enough people enjoy the art that I make. I totally, totally get it. Because I think when I look at the publication date of Radiant Child, it's been about six years. But I take it that you don't necessarily feel the same type of pressure that perhaps other artists might feel when it, when it comes time to producing the work. I don't have that pressure to have a book out every year, two books out every year, three books out every year. And, and this is not to like disparage anybody, you know, like everybody has their own responsibilities. But I've made a really conscious effort to not put myself in that position where I have to do things that I don't want to do with my art to survive. And I have been lucky enough that those choices and decisions that I've made have allowed me thus far to do just that. You sacrifice and you make choices and sometimes you make decisions based on faith. And it's worked for me so far. And how has it worked out for you? I own a building in Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm not worrying about where my next meal is. I'm not struggle-free can I ask a different question? Sure. And I'm reminded by the lines from Radiant Child. And mm -hmm. I would say this as a segue that I think that although your book Radiant Child on Jean-Michel Basquiat was a biography, in many ways, I saw a lot of parallels to your personal life. But with that yes. being said, there's a line throughout when talking about Jean-Michel and how he would say in the conversation with his mother, like, well, one day I'm going to be famous. So if I'm going to think about this notion of wanting to be famous, and it's different from the materiality that comes along with creating art and high art, like where should famous or notoriety fall into that? And I think this is an important conversation for folks to listen to, because I think that's oftentimes a question for artists. As you were saying, you're not personally motivated by the materiality of art, because for you, you're like, look, I'm willing to make sacrifices. Some people don't operate like that, and that's fine. Basquiat, there, there are times that he was like crashing at people's homes, even when his art was being shown in some of the most glamorous and high-end places. Yeah. And it took a little bit for him to start making money, but it was about notoriety. It was about famousness. So where does being famous as an artist connect for you? I think it's a good question. It's like yin and yang, because in order to be a successful artist, or at least, a, you know, financially a successful artist, you have to have a certain amount of fame. And so there's a, a constant tension. Also, just think about the change of society, where now society is demanding more and more and more access. In general, it really depends on what it is that you want to do. The, the fact that I create children's books at this point in the world, in the past two years, maybe I posted like three times on my Instagram account, but people are still interested because there's a physical book with my name on it, with my picture on it, that is speaking for me where my social media is not. 
And I totally get that because if people are interested in the product, they're going to be gravitated towards it and to promote it in that way. But social media is also a beast of an animal and it's fickle and it's very much dependent upon the numbers of followers and who's who and who's looking at you. I know that if I'm having a book out, yeah, it's it's better for me to like post more to do the, the social media things so that I can create a wave or avalanche of support for the project. I think you just have to make the choices. You have to make the choices of how you want to live your life. So take this podcast. Okay. So the metrics of this podcast, when we review it, I have listeners and now... 37 countries worldwide. Great. But it makes sense when I kind of take myself out of it in that we're so global and technology affords us the opportunity to access stories in this way. And that's the premise of why I'm even doing this particular podcast, which is part of a larger book project, amplifying African descendant experiences in a positive way. And to have people who are in Germany and Peru and South Africa being some of the countries where folks are listening consistently, I'm like, wow, it's not just my mama listening. But I I struggle with this whole tension around materialism and even being famous in the Mm -hmm. sense of, yeah, I might have listeners in 37 countries or so. But when I look to the societal metrics of popularity, I don't have, like, say, a lot of Instagram followers. But then if I want funding or ads or sponsorship to even cover the cost of production, it's almost like I have to have thousands more, right? So it's all these weird things that that's not my intention. But as a creative, to your point, you can make choices, but it almost seems like forced to have to like really decide with real implications of, okay, what is my moral compass on this around my art? We create art for ourselves, but we're also creating art for others. But if no one gets to see it, then it's just really for me. Then it's a, it's a narcissistic exercise. It seems sort of tautological. I think it's such a weird tension that I don't think many other professions experience. I agree with what you're saying. I kind of feel the same. I've talked to public relations people. They said, if you don't blog, then don't have a blog. It's not going to work. If you love pictures and you take a lot of photos, have an Instagram account. You have to know who you are. You have to be honest with yourself. You don't have to partake in the entire dish that they're offering. Take the parts that that work for you that you can use. You might look at it as, oh, there might be some drawbacks, but if you're just doing something just to have followers, your follower, the, the people that would have followed you if you were being earnest and honest might not show up. The reality is, is that because of this technology, you know, like you were saying, we have the entire world. We're not just looking at people in New York. We're not just looking at people in America. There are so many millions of people that think the way that you think. And so those are the people that you are going for. You know, if I'm employing your philosophy, which... I do as well. Like, hey, if I put out good stuff, then only good things will come back. So if all of a sudden podcast blows up in a way that it's like, oh my gosh, Oprah said she's listening to it, (laughs) then that's great. If not, it's okay. The only thing I would add is there's a little bit of strategy in there too. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you a question about legacy. Mm-hmm. And so we talked a little bit at the beginning about the influences of your parents and in many ways how their work impacted just 
how you view the world and art because art was around you. But for you thinking forward, what do you want your legacy to be? I would like the word innovative to be (laughs) associated with my legacy. I want people to feel like I was at service, like I helped people. I want to solve problems. I love puzzles. And to me, like life and art and and everything is puzzle. You figure out what you can do and what you can't do. And you put the pieces together where you can and be focused with your time. I want people to feel like I've I've created like a great quality body of work, fulfilled, you know, a need. And not only fulfilled a need, but solved a problem, it sounds like. Addressed an issue or a concern. I'm starting to tell people the thing that I've been working on is that I'm working on a, a publishing company. So, but we can protest from morning until night to the end of the world. If they don't want to hire more Black editors, they won't. If they don't want to deal with the gatekeepers and all of that stuff, they won't. So you make your own. And so that's your legacy also, creating the spaces. Yeah. If the spaces don't include you already or they're not expansive, then it's, then you create your own spaces. Yeah. Get it Act three, where we land. At this point, I always ask guests to share with the audience any upcoming projects or things for them to look out for, but also especially where can they find you, learn more, if there's something that people could look out for, especially in the next couple of months. I would actually say the best way to to get in contact with me is through my social media. And, and that could be Instagram. There's also Twitter. And then there's also Facebook. The great thing about having the name Javaka Steptoe is that if you find a Javaka Steptoe, it's probably me. (laughs) And your website? Uh, Is being redone right now. So like I said, the social media is, is the best way. I have a bunch of projects coming out probably within the next two years, which sounds like a long time, but it it flies by really quickly. All of this time kind of like being off the scene has been an incubation period for me. And so I, I think people would be really excited about what it is that they're going to see. Come on, give us a little bit of a hint. You're going to start seeing things on my YouTube channel in less than two years. So I'm, I'm just spending this time rethinking, reforming and, and changing, you know, based on who I am now in, in the world. And the name of your YouTube channel? Javaka Steptoe. It might be like Javaka dash Steptoe, but it's always Javaka Steptoe. We're looking forward because I know that you've been traveling all over the world and spending time in different countries and Central South America and other places. And so to be able to see how those travels help to inform and shape your reimagining of how you interpret the world around you. In the meantime, thank you for joining us here and sharing your journeys of belonging to Blackness. No problem. I really enjoyed um, speaking with you. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.